As you can see, I am joined by guest Alexandra Stein, and that is actually Dr. Alexandra Stein. And she is uh, actually an amazing woman who has published, she is a writer and educator, and I'm just going to read from her website here because it kind of summarizes it so well, is a writer and educator specializing in the social psychology of ideological extremism. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And other dangerous social relationships. And she is currently an honorary research fellow at London South Bank University and also taught at Birkbeck University of London. So uh, welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back. Yes, yes. We talked years ago. And boy, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then. I've done a lot of education. You've done more work. Things have rolled forward. Um, I mean, Scientology has been exposed as a group much, much, much more. Um, Lots of other cults are more in the public awareness and and sort of consciousness. These words, you know, toxicity and narcissism and abusers and predators and all this stuff is kind of more in the public consciousness now. At least that's kind of how I see it. How, what's, uh, what's your take of, of how things stand right now in the public eye with coercive control and cults and this kind of stuff. Do you think people are more aware of it now? Yeah, it's been kind of amazing, really, from my perspective. I mean, I don't know, over the last five, six years, you know, having kind of toiled away in the slightly anonymous trenches, as many of my colleagues um, have also done, there's been this explosion of interest and media And, you know, I kind of put it down partly to Trump Mm -hmm. and people starting to talk about cults at that level, uh, to the hashtag Me Too movement that kind of brought out a lot of stuff, to Nixium and all the publicity there was about that. And then I, and I think also just a maturing of the field. So, for example, there's my kind of peer group of, of scholars who were first-generation cult members, like me and Yanya and Steve Hassan and others, who I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting you, but I, Dan Shaw is another one. Yeah. And But now what we're seeing is people who were born into cults starting to kind of, I like to think of it as we all stand on each other's shoulders as, as the scholarship progresses. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like Lifton and Hannah Arendt and some, you know, and Margaret Singer were people who were my shoulders that I got to stand on. So I think this second and third and multiple generation uh, folks have now started really speaking out. And I think that's, I think all those things have come together along with terrorism and all so forth. And then I think this fact that we're linking it now to coercive control, which in England now has this law, which maybe we'll talk about later. So there's a different kind of language that I think helps people connect cults to coercive control to other forms of control. So it's been a really interesting and busy time um, and also just a lot of media about, about this. But I think quite a lot of the media is getting slightly better, slightly less voyeuristic in some cases, getting the experts on a little more often 
and trying to make some connections a little more often. Obviously, we have a long way to go, but we're, so it's it's been a really interesting time and kind of gratifying in a way to sort of feel heard finally. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I actually I hear you. And I'm of course one of those second generation folks, exactly. right? Born exactly. in and 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 speaking out now. And it's and you're absolutely right. I have um, you know, I've featured a number of second gen folks on my channel, and you see them starting their own channels, writing mm -hmm. their own books, doing their own media, and really getting the word out there that basically raising kids in an abusive, destructive, you know, kind of fashion or environment is it's really not cool. It's really not okay anymore. <laughs> you know, and for most of history, it has been. And the other thing is with the people who are born or raised in cults, it's though they still get shamed and blamed, it's harder to shame and blame yeah. that crew than it is someone like myself, you know, who, you know, how could I be so stupid? Why did I want to go and join a cult? And, you know, all the kind of, cliches that we constantly are battling yeah. but it is harder for people to do that with people you know those born or raised because you know it really wasn't you can't say it was their fault <laughs> they just had bad luck exactly exactly so it's been really important it's been really really important and also it just highlights the lack of safeguarding of children in these groups yeah. you know and the institutionalization of that lack um which we see in all cults, more or less, you know, that the parents don't have real say over how they're raising their kids. That's and, right. you know, that's not a good thing. Um, mm -mm. Not at all. Yeah. It's Well, it's interesting, and this might be a great time to, to, to sort of segue over to some of your ideas and, and, and the work that you've done. Because you wrote, uh, what was it, in 2016, you wrote Terror, Love, and Brainwashing? with an updated edition uh, last year, 2021. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And I can't recommend that enough. We studied that uh, material in, right. in, in my program, um, you know, on coercive control. And, and there's, and I, that's why one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to actually talk about that because you have some uh, very insightful ideas and uh, and science, you know, kind of stuff about how this works. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of sciencey, right? Uh, but it's but it's but it's really important stuff because we're trying to answer the question: How is it that you can see parents specifically? Is what made me think of this um, become absentee, neglectful, even mm -hmm. abusive parents because they join some cult, they join some group, they get onto an ideological or religious or some other kind of platform where they think somehow this supersedes or takes over their priorities or their, you know, their thinking so much that their own children become neglected as a result. And, I, and of course, I immediately start thinking about this thing called attachment theory and, and your work with that. Could you explain you know, how that works or what that's about? How How is it possible for, for people to get that messed up with their family relationships because of the influence of a group or a leader? Well, I'll give it a try. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit complicated, so I'll just try to um, sure. uh, simplify it. Um, so attachment theory, which is an evolutionary-based theory uh, that was developed well, probably starting in the 60s by John Bowlby, 
And it's amazing stuff, and it's quite well-known in various ways now, but often not well-explained, to be honest. Um, but, you know, if you go... Anyway, it's it's great stuff. And it's based on the idea that it's people don't just need food, shelter, sex to survive and keep the species going. They also have a need for protection, particularly babies from, need to be protected by their parents or they wouldn't survive. So it's been selected in this need for parents and babies to attach, but it kind of carries on through life. You know, we need each other to survive in, in short. There are various attachment statuses. Um, I won't go into them all, but there's a kind of organized set that are, you know, one is really good and the others are good enough. They're kind of predictable ways that people react and respond in personal relationships. But the, the attachment status that I'm particularly interested in and that I thought really helps us understand the cultic bond is called disorganized attachment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called that because what happens is you perceive, let's say, a person, but it could be a group, mm -hmm. but for the sake of the discussion, I'll say it's a person, say your parent, mm -hmm. as being a safe haven. They're the ones who are supposed to comfort you. And so we, we have um, attachment behaviors when we're stressed or tired or sick or frightened. And that, those states trigger us to try to attach to our comfort figure, our safe haven, which not if it's in a reasonable attachment relationship, that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, you get some comfort or, at least, or even if you don't, you kind of know that's what's going to happen. But in a disorganized relationship, it's actually the attach the so-called attachment figure, the so-called comfort figure, who's creating the stress by being frightened, frightening. Ah. So you have perceived comfort and fear from the same source. Right. Whereas in when you have a kind of let's say secure attachment, you'll have a comfort over here and the person over here, and the fear is external, or it might be in the person being ill, but it's not coming from the comfort figure. Right. But when the fear comes from the comfort figure, so in other words, an, let's say an abusive partner, an abusive parent, who sometimes is saying, you know, I love you, you're the best thing, you know, in the world, you know, here's a bunch of flowers, um, but then turns on a dime and is threatening and frightening in a variety of ways. So what that creates what we call disorganized attachment. When, but it doesn't really create as serious a problem if you're not isolated. So if your comfort figure is being frightening and you have other people in your life, you can kind of go to them, other trusted safe people, I should say. You can go to them and say, you know, my mom's freaking me out, you know, and you go to Auntie Jane and she says, yeah, well, your mum gets like that sometimes. Let me give you some tea and cake. I'm in England, so I have to say tea. <laughs> so you can kind of escape that if you have other trusted people in your life. But the abusers cut you off from other trusted people. Yeah. So you're kind of trapped in this little box. And I'm going to show you my picture from my book. 
because I chose it because I want to show all these people trapped, isolated in these boxes. Yeah. I mean, they're sort of together, they're shoved together, but they're not really together. They're isolated because isolation is really the principal element of this dynamic. Yeah. So you have this supposed comfort figure who is actually frightening. You've got the victim, let's say, isolated. So their instinct, their, you know, their evolved response to threat is to seek their comfort figure. So they go towards the source of threat, who is also supposedly the comfort figure, because they have nowhere else to go. And that going towards the source of threat is a very dangerous thing because obviously we shouldn't go towards a fearful stimulus. We should flee or fight it. So instead of the fight or flight response, <clears throat> we have what we call fright without solution or freezing because it's maladaptive. It doesn't help us survive. And the best way in that situation for us to survive is to freeze which isn't a very good survival technique, but it's the best we can do. That's right. So it's the same as if someone's in any kind of trauma, there's this kind of freezing that happens. But in a relationship or a cult, that can go on for years. So it's not a momentary trauma. It's what I call a chronic relational trauma. And you get stuck in this positive feedback loop of trying to get comfort where none is available. Well, they might sometimes drip a little tiny bit yeah. of comfort just to keep you hooked. Yep. But mostly you're going towards the, the supposed comfort, but getting more fear, getting your cortisols, which are our hormonal response to stress, activated. So you're in a constant anxiety state like this, trying to bonding to this supposed comfort figure to try to get resolution, but not ever getting resolution. Whereas in a secure relationship, if you're frightened and you go to them for comfort, they'll give you comfort and eventually you'll have enough comfort. And we say in that case, your attachment behaviors are terminated. So you can say, oh, thanks. That was really nice to get that hug and be soothed. I'm off now to have some more fun. You, so you leave again to go and get more stimulus. But in that tr trauma uh, relationship, you don't ever get that. Uh, you don't ever attain sufficient resolution of those high cortisols. So you stay in this permanent anxiety. There we go. And that's so, why there's yeah. a physical component to this. It's not just spiritual abuse or psychic abuse it's actual there's physical mm -hmm. stuff going on there that that could that over time can mm -hmm. physically wear down your your systems totally i really do think it's helpful to see it as a physiological process yeah. about inducing stress and then what happens to stress what happens to the brain when it's chronically stressed and in this situation that we call fright without solution. So you're chronically in this hyper-vigilant, hyper-anxious state. Now, importantly, you don't know why. Yes. Okay, if you were, you know, if I'm 
I don't know what an example would be. You know, if I'm worried about getting COVID, let's say, <laughs> which I tend to be, you know, <laughs> and I'm going, especially in that first year, right? You're yeah. going around. We were all chronically worried, weren't we, and frightened. Yeah. But we kind of knew why. It didn't mean it was nice or easy, but we knew what the problem was. In a cult or an abusive relationship, you don't know that the story, the narrative that the abuser is delivering says, this is heaven on earth. If you just work harder, you're going to attain transformation. You're going to be successful at business. You're going to have marvelous relationships. You're going to, in my the case of the cult I was in, we're going to move towards a revolutionary society. You know, you get the story that has nothing to do with what you're experiencing, which is this oppression and fear and general unhappiness. So, so you don't, and you can't unpick that. Like I'm a critical thinker. What's the name of your podcast? Critical thinker. <laughs> yes, I used to. I used to identify as critical thinker at large. <laughs> okay. Well, I was a critical thinker, yeah. and I mean, I wasn't necessarily right about. I mean, I was wrong. I was young and foolish about a lot of things, as one is. But I did think critically. I tried to understand the world, and I was a big reader and yep. thinker, you know. And um, but cults disable that. It's not right. that you're not initially a critical thinker, but that constant tension and anxiety has an effect on the brain. Yes, because you're you're in this trauma state. This kind of Basically, you're frightened all the time without knowing it and without knowing why. Right. And in my kind of attempts to have a basic understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, and I'm by no means an expert, but I did try to learn about it. When one is in a state of trauma, the piece of the brain that links the sort of midbrain, the more emotion unprocessed piece of the brain that's just responding to the world and its stimulus. There's a piece called the orbital frontal cortex. I think of it as being here. I don't know. It's sort of in the middle there. <laughs> it connects to your frontal cortex, which is your language-based critical thinking, not just reactive part of the brain. Yeah. And that piece, the orbital frontal cortex, when it has when there's some stimulus coming into your midbrain through your senses, it, its job is to say, "Do I need to think further about what's happening? What this stimulus is?" And if I do, it links up. This is how I visualize it to the frontal cortex, and you can then think clearly about it. Okay, you know, COVID's rampant. Um, we don't exactly know how it's passed, but I think. The, you know, I'm going to study what the epidemiologists say. I'm going to wear my mask. Yep. You know, that's linking this kind of fear response to a critical thinking response. But when you're in trauma, that piece deactivates. So you're having all this fear stimulus, but the fright without solution means it doesn't get up to that cognitive, the higher order cognitive part of your brain. So you literally can't think about the frightening relationship. There it is. 
And again, I was a thinker. I am a thinker. I couldn't think about it. Yep. And part of why you can't think about it is because it pushes you even further into the fear. Right. So there's this kind of, ah, 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 ah. do you approach it? Do you avoid it? No, I'm just going to freeze. It's too, cannot compute. Right. Um, so I think that, <laughs> so no. you have the emotional bond that I described of trying to get comfort. And then you have the cognitive disabling of your critical mind about that relationship. So you maybe can still be critical or not maybe critical. You can think about other things yep. like your job maybe or whatever, but you cannot think about what's happening in that relationship. It's a powerful dynamic. Big time. Really powerful. Yeah. Well, I think I, that's my short version. Yeah, no, that is beautiful. And I, and I am so happy that you were able to break it down that way with the brain science as well, because I have said for years, I've been telling people, Look, you know, when it comes to a cult, when it comes to an extremist belief set, you are incapable of thinking critically about it. I've said those exact words. And you have just broken down exactly why, right? Mm -hmm. At least from one, uh, from, a, from a brain science and an emotional response and, you know, sort of physiological, neurological point of view. And it's, and that is exactly, um, you know, what I've been preaching for years is it, and it's, and it's hard for people to kind of get their wits around it because it's like you have this very smart, very sensible person who has, you know, put together a decent life, raises their kids, does whatever they're doing. But then they get into this area or they join a cult or they get, you know, involved with some narcissistic individual and suddenly everything is just insane in their life. And suddenly they are acting completely nuts and nobody can really understand why. You know? And you've just kind of basically broken it down. You know? I mean, what I would love for any young scholars uh, listening, you know, I, I, I really think that, you know, a neuroscience lab could see this, yep. you know, I mean, there was, you know, the, I, I think the Bessel van der Kolk book, which I'm going to forget the name of now, The Body Keeps the Score, mm -hmm. has an old study in it. Um, and there are much newer studies that say much the same thing, mm -hmm. but the study that he talked about, which first kind of got my interest in some of the, some of this element, was with Vietnam vets reading back like they were under the fMRI machines to look at their brain activity, and they either read, had read back to them their narratives about some trauma from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And in that case, their language region of the brain didn't light up which is called the broker's region. Mm -hmm. But that's all part of this general region. There are all these pieces that live very close together in the brain that are all linked to this, you know, language, judgment, executive function. And I'm sure that if we put some ex-cult members under, you know, in one of these marvelous machines and had them think about some of the traumatic episodes in their lives, we would see this effect. I mean, we kind of have to because it was traumatic, you know, so why wouldn't we? Absolutely. And we know that cult members suffer trauma. So it's not actually rocket science. It's just putting the dots together, you know. Exactly. Uh, well, you're really basically describing a situation of complex PTSD. Because exactly. That, that's exactly, right? yeah. Because that's the thing. It's the recurring trauma. And it's complex because it's not just based on a single incident, you know, or a single thing. It's 
It's an ongoing series of traumas. And this is where we get into, would you like to connect this or, or, um, or can you connect this at all with this concept of trauma bonding? Because I, I kind of think you've also described that here too. Yes. And, and by the way, also, I just want to give a nod to Judith Herman, whose mm -hmm. book Trauma and Recovery is absolutely brilliant yeah. and really talks about a lot of this stuff, you know, in slightly different terms, but she really gets this very well. But I think I tried to talk about trauma bonding really already that you, mm -hmm. because you have to, you know, again, it's biological, it's physiological, you're in a state of stress and biologically we try to seek comfort and if the only comfort figure is guru what's his name that's you where you're gonna go that's right and you're, unless and, and, and unless you've been previously uh taught or have learned about these dynamics in which case you have some protection because you go oh i understand what's happening i'm gonna have to look after myself here for a while until I can escape. Exactly. Um, exactly. But most people have never been taught this stuff. So they're just like leading lambs to the slaughter, you know. That's right. Well, it's because it's because when you're in that position, and this is, this, I, I, again, I'm so glad you're bringing up these points because this is that educational component that is exactly. so important for ex-cult members to get their, that you, you got to get your head around these concepts because otherwise it's a big mystery. It's a big question mark in people's minds. Why am I drawn to this person I know is bad for me and yet I cannot help but can stay in their orbit or keep going back to them or they go into this sort of apathetic state of, I guess there's just no getting out of this or there's no hope for me or, and they tend to put the blame on the onus for, you know, the responsibility for this on themselves. And, and they don't recognize that there's a bigger situation going on here in the dynamics of the relationship itself. And the fact that they are, that there is a reward system and a punishment system. And, and over time, there's less reward and more punishment, but it never really does go full hundred percent punishment because you always got to keep the person on the tenterhooks. You got to keep them around. And that's where the candy, the flowers and the rewards and all of that come in. And it's, it's this, this, it's frightening how sheep like, I guess you could say we can be about that when we don't understand the situation we're in. Mm -hmm. Judith Herman has a wonderful phrase in her book about the candy and the flowers, you uh, know, that little drip drip of, keeping you in. Yeah. She says it's, she calls it the capricious granting of small indulgences. Beautiful. Exactly. But, you know, but basically you're being exploited 24 seven right. and told who to sleep with or not to sleep with and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the thing that you were saying, an interesting piece about why people find it so hard, can find it hard to detach yeah. if they don't understand uh, the process is there's a phenomenon in attachment behaviors that's again a normal part of human attachment behavior when so one attachment an attachment relationship as i describe describe in my book courtesy of john bowlby is that you can experience great distress on the loss of the relationship and the other feature is that only that relationship will do it's not replaceable by any other. So let's say 
it's your parent. You know, that would be a kind of more normal relationship to have that feeling, those feelings towards. Now, if, say, a parent dies or a loved one dies, we tend to engage in what's called searching behavior. That's what attachment theorists call it. Mm. Because you have this bond and you're distressed. And in fact, it's part of being disorganized. So when you lose, when you have a bereavement, attachment theorists think that there is about a year. I mean, I'm sure that's not a definite amount. I'm sure sometimes it's longer or shorter, where that relationship is disorganized because you love that person, but now they're gone. Could be true also of breaking up a very close relationship, right? Mm -hmm. You love that person, now they're gone. So you're experiencing those contradictory emotions. You want to go, the, the loved person is causing you distress by their absence. Right. But you're trying to go to them for comfort. Right. That they're not there anymore. So when you lose someone, you have this period where you, well, like recently my sister sadly died and I kept seeing people with long blonde hair on the street. I knew she was dead. You know, I wasn't confused about that, but I would keep doing these double takes right. thinking, oh, that's Hattie. I think that was searching behavior. Like she, I hadn't my, I hadn't metabolized, even though I knew she was dead, I hadn't really metabolized that is a word they use in attachment. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So in a, in a cult, even if you leave, you may still, when you feel stressed, you're still kind of primed to go to them. And that, or like a breakup of a relationship that maybe you even broke up, um, but you kind of want to go back to them when you're stressed. So that's called searching behavior. And I think that happens quite a lot with ex-cult members. And it's very confusing. And it's helpful to know that, that it has a name and it will it will dissipate over time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the pain yeah. of it initially, especially I will say, I'll just throw out there the first year, you know, is so bad that that causes a lot of recidivism. You mm -hmm. know, you get a lot of people going back because they can't deal with that vacuum of, of emotion or that feeling of need that is unfulfilled and they, and it's got to get fulfilled. And that's where that emotional needs component comes in you know and i mean i know for me i mean i hated the actual cult i had no desire to go back yeah. i was just so ready to escape but i think maybe a little way i had it was trying to so i was in a political cult as i think you know yeah. was trying rather quickly to get involved in other political activity and it was like, no, after a few tries, I was like, oh, no, I can't do this now. This is way too complicated. I didn't know what I believed anymore. You know, I didn't know how to be in a group. I hardly knew how to be with other human beings, you know. Tell so with ex-cult members, there is a, you do have to go through a process of really re-establishing off a second and multiple generation, you know, establishing more normal life you know and all and that's what's so difficult because it's so many aspects of life it's not just one you know right. it's, it's really a tough I'll, tough journey i'll certainly say i'll certainly back that up i mean i've been it's almost it's coming up on um 10 years out for me and 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, this end of this year will be will be ten years that I'll be out of the Sea Organ. Next year it'll be ten years out of Scientology altogether. And um, and I can tell you, it's a process. It's a slow process in some ways. You know, even when you are like nose to the grindstone, like I've been, and you're really working on the recovery, and you're really working on trying to figure it all out. It takes time. And um, I mean, it's really only been very recently that I have really felt at all confident in the idea of joining a group again. Right. That's the last thing. And when you do, yeah. <laughs> listen, I work for a charity, the Family Survival Trust. You know, we're a wonderful bunch. But, you know, as other people will attest, it's hard to organize a group of ex-cult members. <laughs> None of us want to be told what to do. Yeah, you know? it's weird. It's, it's an odd phenomenon that way. Exactly. We're a little... Uh, I really need my autonomy. Exactly. Exactly. It's a funny dynamic, though, working with people that way. Um, and it has a lot to do with this, all this attachment stuff, which is why I love, of uh, you know, hearing and, and, and having all this broken down and explained. Um, cause it's not that, and I want to, I I'd like to be clear or maybe ask you about this. Cause it's not like these are abnormalities in our psychology. I don't look at these as aberrations or as aberrant behavior or as like something bizarre and inexplicable that only a minority of the population suffers from. We all need attachment. We all need to connect with people. In fact, it's something wrong with you if you don't need right. that. Exactly. You know, I mean, I used to talk to a lot of these terrorism scholars, and they would say, you know, things like, well, you know, these people who join ISIS have a need to belong. And I would just laugh at them and say, well, we all need to belong. What a ridiculous thing to say. Exactly. I mean, not, not all like that, but early, a long a while ago, that was the response I used to get. Right. But right, it's normal, it's adaptive. If we didn't need to belong, we would not survive. That's right. Um, the abnormality is in the perpetrators who have a need to control others absolutely. Yes. And as I never remember who said this, but as somebody said, who have great insight into the minds of others, but not into their own minds. So they know how to manipulate in order to control others. And they, I hypothesize, and there seems to be pretty good evidence, come from unhappy childhoods, more than that, frightening childhoods. Doesn't mean that everyone from that kind of background is going to turn into a cult leader, but cult leaders do have these, I think, frightening backgrounds that lead them to feel the way they can feel safe is to utterly control other human beings. Yes. And they can't let any reciprocity really enter into the relationship. Right. And everything is about them. You know, you can see that with Mr. Trump, frankly, with Boris Johnson. Yeah. Bless. You know, it's, it's a very predictable set of characteristics that I think Yanya Lalich has described well in her book, Take Back Your Life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the models have been upside down. They keep looking for what's wrong with the people who join. Yep. Well, there's nothing wrong with us. We were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. But there is, and, you, and also we come from any, a great variety of personalities, a great variety of pre-existing attachment statuses. Some of us had screwed up attachment with our families. Some of us had perfectly secure attachments. That is not the predictor. The, the predictor is, did we run into a cult 
that didn't tell us what it was, but claimed to be something positive that fit where we were at that point in life. That's right. So, you know, I always say for me, I was a political animal from a young age. You know, I wanted to be in a political group. And I had been in some okay political things before, but because the vulnerability factor of I had never been taught anything about what a cult is, I knew nothing about cults, that when I got into this thing that then started clamping down, being very secret, telling me my good points were actually bad points, et cetera, et cetera, controlling my personal relationships, telling me who I should marry, and working me so hard. I mean, that's the other thing is the physical exhaustion. That's right. So it adds to that. I mean, there are many. The attachment piece that I've described is, I think, the, the core thing that disorganizes us and makes us unable to think. But there are many other things that add to that, that keep that going. That's right. Like the physical exhaustion. I think what Steve Hassan talks about, isolation from information and all his bite model. Yeah. Sleep deprivation. Um, the the secrecy, yeah. sometimes malnutrition, yeah. uh, the, the, the rewards and punishment. All yeah. these things yeah. act together. So it's not, you know, my thing is one piece, but we have to look at, there are many pieces to the puzzle to create a person who cannot think clearly. That's right. So again, when I got out of the cult, having worked 18 hour days for God knows how long, many years, and I often tell the story. Um, and I was, I remember saying to my sister after I got out, I don't know why I'm so tired. I'm having three naps a day. And she just looked at me and says, well, you're tired. You know, I had a lot of sleeping to catch up on. And I was physically just totally drained. So, yeah, so all these things work together to to disable us from being able to think and being able to escape also, which exactly. is another element. You know, the actual escape can be very difficult. Well, yeah, know, because- For you, many reasons. That, exactly. <laughs> and these, and this, but this uncertainty, this, this confusion that we ourselves will generate when we're stuck in a situation like that and don't understand all the components of it, again, we'll tend to introvert. We will tend to blame ourselves. And we are assisted in this by the fact that the narcissist cult leader group are mm -hmm. telling us it's our fault if we're having doubts, fears, uncertainties, reservations, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they, they, the, all that social pressure, even if it's just from one person or, well, again, from the group, it becomes even more powerful. And then, of course, the love bombing just is more triggering of the traumatic bonding. And so it, so it really... The forces arrayed against you can be quite powerful and mm -hmm. lacking any understanding of that. It makes complete sense why somebody would stay stuck in that situation for an ungodly amount of time before they finally snap out of it and, and, and get out. And, and that escape factor is very, very difficult because you have to overcome all of that right, to right. get out. And you have no validation when you're in the group all the validation is this fictitious story yeah. about how great the group is and i mean the reason i got out was because at one point the leader was in jail unbeknownst to me and some uh, one of the women i knew and was friendly with as much as one can be friendly in a cult which is difficult 
had finally said, you know, she thought there were power problems in the group. And I had this momentary validation and I just burst into tears. And within three months, about, you know, several of us were out because when you don't have any validation, that's why cults have to immediately get rid of people who are causing trouble. They can't tolerate any dissent because that can spread like wildfire because it validates not just the ideas that people have, but their lived experience, their actual experience of this dreadful life they're living, because mostly it's dreadful. There may be some good things, but generally it's dreadful. That's why we don't like cults. They were, if they were good, there wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't be talking about it here. Right. But they're not. They're crap. <laughs> right. So you get as soon as you get a little validation, that also helps you start to be able to, because in a way, the validation gives you a kind of safe haven that kind of can let that, for mo- even if it's just for a moment, let that, fr- that freeze response, that fright without solution response, oh, maybe there's a solution. Maybe I can talk to this person about what the problems are yeah. or think it through. Or maybe you read something, you know, maybe you're one of these people who's gone on the internet against the orders and read a critical account and you go, oh, you know, there's that validation allows you to break that fright without solution um, problem. So, yeah, all this stuff that all of us are doing right now of all this media is really important because, you know, like I get, I've had some clients doing recovery work with me, I think at least three or four who've come because they watched Wild Wild Country which I'm not sure is the greatest explanation of cults in the world. I haven't actually seen it, to be honest, but they watched it and went, oh, I think I'm in a cult, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So once you start to see your experience reflected and maybe have a language for it, you can find your, it makes sense. It's that starts to make sense of your experience, which the fictitious narrative doesn't. That just confuses you. Exactly. which helps the dissociation and the disorganization. That's right. Which That's is what, yeah. which is the reason why these groups and cult leaders will specialize in developing thought-stopping clichés, right? Mm-hmm. The thought-terminating clichés because they want you not thinking. Mm-hmm. And as much as possible, they're trying to tamp that down, right? And keep it keep it so that you're just thinking with the mantras and the, you know, and the purpose of the group, and you just stay focused on, you know, saving the world or whatever it is the group is supposed to be, you know, so uh, centralized around. I mean, the whole thing about language in these groups is absolutely fascinating. And I have one chapter on it, and on the ideology. And at the time, I thought this should be a whole book, but someone else is going to have to write it, because it won't be me. But you can just look at a snippet of of like the leader's language. Like once you know what they're doing, you can just see it in a paragraph. It's so fascinating because it's, it's language that is geared to dissociating you. That's right. So it's either, well, like the guy I studied for my PhD dissertation, Fred Newman and his cult, he would write these, you know, half page long paragraphs with like six parenthesized clauses dumped into the center. You could not, no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't make sense of what he'd written. 
but it had all these big words and it it seemed very sensible. You just were like, I think I'm too stupid to understand it. Yes, yes. Or you get the Trumpian language, which is just overly simple and repetitive and equally not understandable other than just hectoring. That's right. So, it, yeah, it's really fascinating. And its purpose is not to make sense. In fact, the opposite. Its purpose is to be nonsense, to be confusing to the brain, but to appear as if there's something there. If only you could just figure it out. That's right. Because the mystery of that is what it acts like a glue that just mm -hmm. keeps you stuck to it because you keep thinking, I'm deficient for not understanding this because mm -hmm. you've granted authority to this figure for whatever reason. And so now you have to understand them and it's your deficiency that you don't. It's mm -hmm. never the case. And this was, and I can relate so well to what you're saying only because that's L. Ron Hubbard as well. Yeah. I mean, to a T, I, I couldn't believe my master's thesis was research on Hubbard's language and how it develops oh, good. Good. A, a coercive control framework. And I analyzed five of his lectures. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. It was an amazing exercise because I. I, I saw things in his work that I had never seen before, even so many years out. And, wow. and wow. really breaking down how he did what he did with the language. And and it and it's all there, all the coercive control elements. But you real you come to realize, like you were just saying, it's not about words that are communicating clear-cut ideas. It is about words that are used to incite emotional responses. You know, and build a framework of double binds and 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 the um, bounded choices, right? And the and the and the screwed up attachments. The words reinforce those, and it's and it's a it's this really bizarre use of language that people don't think about because they don't use language that way. Cult leaders do. You and know? that, sorry, carry on. No, I was just gonna say. I mean, you get a flate, you get a shade of this with politicians. You get a shade of this in music even a little bit, but it's not destructive. Mm -hmm. Cult leaders turn it to the dark side, you know. And just to build on that, so, you know, what I was talking about, about that key relationship of the fear and comfort from the same figure. Yeah. You know, often people think I'm talking about a direct relationship to someone but for instance, I didn't know my cult leader. I didn't know his name. I didn't know what he looked like. He had an acronym, which was P-O-O -O at one point, which is an interesting acronym to choose. <laughs> <laughs> and another point, it, I never knew what it even stood for. Another time it was P.S., Program Secretary. Anyway, I didn't know this guy. I didn't know there was a guy, you know. So you don't have to have that direct relationship because the whole point about cults is that they institutionalize these dynamics. Yeah. And one of the ways they do it is through language. And again, I think this is where Yanya's work is, is really interesting through bounded choice. So that what she calls the transcendental belief system or the ideology mm -hmm. and this, uh, 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 the control and the norms, she, the systems of control and the social norms. I can't quite remember how she discusses it, mm -hmm. but you have this whole, it just kind of comes through the structure, the isolating structure of the group, the weird language that supports that structure, 
then the the uh, comfort fear dynamics that run all the way through all of this. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. And, you know, that's really important to understand because we have these, you know, cults like North Korea or yeah. ISIS or Hitler's cult, you know, they're not, it's not, a doesn't have to be a direct personal thing. It's a system. But that system, I think, all goes back to the leader's brain and the leader's need for control. Yeah. and their disorganization and the only way they know how to relate to other people. But then they kind of create these systems, um, not consciously, but they learn that this is what works. If you do this, to, and also they that's probably how they grew up. So they learned it in their background. A lot of them, as we know, like Scientology is a good example, went through other cults first and picked up some tricks there. Cause what, well, you know, your guy was Crowley and all that. Lot. That's right. That's right. All, know, through, all through 19th theosophy, century. You know, and that's right. You know, theosophy and Madame Blavatsky. I mean, they, she must've spawned million. Well, many thousands, thousands of cults, Yes. But, you know, people pick up the tricks and then Scientology has spawned many more. Um, but they have to have at the top a person who has that psychology of needing to control others. That's right. I think uh, you've just helped describe as well the online cult model because because mm. we have this thing now. We have Atiel Swan. I don't know if you've heard of her or, yes. you know, yeah. some of these people who are just online personalities and through mm. video work and then through seminars and in-person work. Teal Swan does, you know, in-person stuff. But they, you know, that's where you get the real inner circle hardcore mm -hmm. membership. But you, but you do get this online component. And I think we saw this most strongly around QAnon, which is still going. Yeah, yeah. You know, and nobody knows who Q is. They, there's all kinds of supposition. So your point about that direct relationship is really important. I ran into David. But someone is directing, but someone yeah. is directing right. QAnon. It's not an organic thing that just came out of nowhere. That's right. That's right. And they know what they're doing. Yep. By the way. <laughs> oh, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I don't think you can accidentally form a cult. Yeah. You know? I yeah. mean, it, it requires yeah. intent. And, and clearly there is intent there. But the online model is really interesting because it doesn't have that brick and mortar physical component always connected with it. And yet all the mental and psychological stuff happens. And you're like, how is this possible? It, exactly what you've been describing. You know, just because you're not physically in touch with somebody doesn't mean they can't do these things to you. Also, and I mean, I don't, you know, I'm still trying to understand the online element, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of the online cults also do have personal relationships. I don't mean direct to the leader, but they're mm -hmm. networks of personal relationships. So. You know, your your sister texts you, look at this website. Mm -hmm. And because she's your sister, you give that that's right. validation. You yeah. trust her. Or your friend. You know, that's how the multi-level marketing stuff works, right? That's right. So you do have this these known networks that kind of spread the stuff through your personal connections who you have some form of trust in that's right um, and then some of them and i don't know about QAnon, but something like free domain radio with that 
dreadful guy, Stefan Molyneux, who's just a fascist. Yes. You know, that was like mostly online, but then people, and also for that matter, the recruitment of, of many terrorists online. That's right. But you end up maybe having a more personal relationship with the recruiter. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the recruiter is becomes known to you as someone who you're messaging a lot. So you develop a personal relationship. So it's not just what's, it's not just out there. It's coming into your personal orbit, your developing trusting relationships with the people. That's right. That makes sense. I think that still goes on a lot. I don't think it's just random on the internet. Do you, do you know what I mean? I but do. I'm, I do. I think we have still quite a lot to understand about how that works. Yes. Um, but as we know, especially in these days of COVID, we build strong relationships online. They're not just because they're online doesn't mean they're not intense and personal and real. Exactly. You know, I know we talk about in real life, but it's also in real life, the online, you know. So, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of interesting things to think about about right. that. And I'm sure there are people doing that right now. So well, that's I, great. Exactly. I certainly hope so. I, will, I would go so far as to say for sure, I would say that um, you're not going to radicalize somebody without that personal touch. Yeah. Exactly. Because you have to form that attachment in a way. You know, they have to feel like they're part of something. Good God that they belong. That's right. right. And you need (laughs) Um, that community sense of emotional, you know, comfort and fulfillment. And that only comes from another human being. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting stuff? It's, you know, and I, and I can sense so much, I, I remember so much of what you're talking about in my Scientology and Sea Org experience with David Miscavige, because I only interacted with the guy like three or four times for brief periods. And yet, you know, he was this model, ideal Scientology figure. And, um, and I didn't have to interact with him that many times for that, that, you know, sort of disorganized attachment thing to happen. Um, and then it was just, you know, then it just gets reinforced through written works or through video, or you see him on a stage at an event or something. But all those emotions are at play every time you're encountering the person, mm-hmm. you know, and I would call it respect when I was in the Sea Org because uh, I, I didn't know what word to assign to this mix of feelings that was uh, love and terror combined. Mm-hmm. That really was. I mean, that's why I love the title of your book because it's just <laughs> perfect. You know, because it's these extreme emotions. It's the, the thing about yeah. cults. The thing about these extreme things is is they are extreme. They're they're, yeah. they're not middle of the road. When you are middle of the road on something, you can think about it. It's when you go extreme that you start losing yeah. your ability to. Yeah. Um. And that's something that's hard when you get out, I think, to kind of reconcile to being an ordinary person. Yes. You're not part of this elite that's going to save the world. Right. And, and you know, that that's quite a come down. It kind of, I mean, it was very humbling for me. I, I, I hope in a good way and improve my personality. I'm <laughs> less arrogant than when I was young. Um, but also uh, Zimbardo and was it Anderson uh, was another author wrote a really nice little paper about when keeping a balance of what they call saturation and detachment. So when you're getting involved in a group, so I used to teach this paper when I was teaching, 
you don't want to be so detached from life because you've been so scarred in a cult that you never want to do anything again. Yes. You, you want to get involved and be passionate even about something, but you also want to sometimes detach and sit back and review and evaluate. That's right. So they talked about it as being keeping a balance between saturation and detachment. And I thought, I like that. I like that way of talking about it, you know, because as you said, so many people just get so frightened and traumatized, they never trust anyone again. But, that's you right. know, then you have a rather poor life experience, you know, that's. Well, exactly. Because I, you know, I was talking the other day on my live show about this fact, and it actually it was kind of springing from exactly what we're talking about right now is, you know, for a while now, I have admitted, I admitted I've been afraid to commit, you know, because it would limit my choices. And I thought about it that way. But also there's that emotional part, right? Which is like, oh boy, well, when you commit, that means you're giving over a little bit of yourself to something. Mm -hmm. And you want to be careful about how much of yourself you're giving over because it's so easy to yeah. slide all the way in because you get really excited. And there's that whole new relationship energy thing that happens when you're in a new relationship, in a new group. They can do no wrong. It's always just the good of the thing. And you really got it. You know, it's it's a matter of 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 having intelligent degrees of caution. Not not don't take it too far. Don't be paranoid. But careful how what what you choose to commit yourself to. You know? And that's where learning, as we kind of started, learning about how cults work, learning some good social psychology, yep. uh, learning about boundaries, you know, learning all of this stuff is really helpful because once you can learn about it, then you, you know, I can, I always joke, I can spot a cult from three miles away now. You know, I'm quite often seen to walk, like I've, you know, I walked out of a yoga class last year. You know, I walk away from things with impunity in the middle of someone's talk. I will say, ah, warning sign, red flag, I'm out of here. That's right. And it's very empowering because when I don't see the warning flags and I'm like, okay, we're doing all right. This person isn't trying to control people. So that's something that is learnable. It's not magic. And um, yeah, that's really helpful. But it, again, for it can take a while if you've been in the cult for a while. Exactly. Exactly. There's just a lot to overcome. But I think at least at least those of us who have been who have seen behind the curtain and and, and been part of that experience, you know, we we I, I, I hope it gives us uh, a leg up. But there, you know, again, if you don't get educated, uh, you know, you can just fall for it all over again. And it's it's really, really, really important. Um. Alexandra, I think I want to wrap up now. I think we have covered some amazingly important information, and I don't want to overload my audience because this is really concentrated podcast of, of a lot of stuff we've covered here. Are there any other points that you think uh, we haven't covered that are like super, super vital that you want to impart to an audience of ex-cultists or people who are looking to try to help people, friends and family who are in cults? Well, just one thing in terms of kind of the direction of our activism is, you know, some suggestions. You know, I think one direction which we've talked about at length is education, you know, both for ex-cult members and the population at large to as a prevention, both a recovery and a prevention measure. 
But I think the other thing that we need to be active about is legal sanctions on cults, mm -hmm. which currently are very absent, if they're at all. And the thing we're trying to do in the UK right now with the charity I work with, the Family Survival Trust Action Against Cultic Abuse, is our full name, is trying to amend the UK law on coercive control, which is a very good law, and it details patterns of behavior, which are exactly what cults do, that are now in a personal relationship illegal. If you do these patterns of coercive behavior in an intimate or family relationship, if you're successfully prosecuted, you go to jail. So we're lobbying to say, if that's illegal in a personal relationship, how come you can get away with it in a group or a yes. non-domestic relationship? Yes. So, so what, that's just we, our particular... We studied this law in my program. Yeah, so you know how, yeah. So I think for activists, trying that's just for the UK case that we have a law that we can fight to ex make better. Yep. I think we have to try to fight for some legal sanctions on these groups as well as doing education. I think those, I see those as the two poles that need to happen. I agree. Um, that's really my, my last comment is, you know, encouraging people on, on that. Um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think that's vital. And I, and, and you're hitting on something that I run into all the time in trying to, a, a very big pillar of frustration for me in the last nine years has been watching Scientology and to a lesser degree, other groups that I've paid some attention to, but not as much as Scientology for obvious reasons, watch them wrangle their way through court cases and succeed where they should be failing. Yeah, yeah, because we don't have the laws. We need better, new and better laws, and it's achievable. Yes. We can do it. Excellent. Yeah. I agree. I agree completely. Well, Alexander, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me You're today. Welcome. Yeah, it was good to chat. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay. And, I, and oh, folks right. out there now, how do let me uh, let me wrap up with this real fast, and we'll and we'll wrap up. Where do people find you? Where do people find your work? Um, my website is www.alexandrastain.com, and my book is Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. And my earlier book is Inside Out, which is my memoir of my cult experience. So one of the many memoirs that are out there. Um, I guess that's that's how. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will put a link in the show notes below, right. folks, uh, to right. her website so you can check that out. And um, and I cannot recommend enough. I'm serious, and I, you know, and I, 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 uh, I, I retreat Alexandra all the time. She's she's a really smart person, and she's got really intelligent things to say. And I really want you guys to read her book. So so do check it out, okay? Uh, and that's as much you know promotion as I can do here on that. So uh, so again, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, folks out there, thank you very much for inviting us into your home this week and watching us talk about this. And I hope you learned something from it. And it was at least somewhat educational, informative, and entertaining. And on that note, if you would like to support the channel to so keep this content going, please do so. Links below to all of the various ways you can show us some love. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.